Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 and onwards. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I want to talk about the fruit-bearing gospel. More particularly, I want to talk about how can we ensure that the gospel bears fruit in our lives, personally, in our families, in our communities, impacting our nation and beyond. We need to see how does the gospel actually do this? It's not automatic. We have to work with this. And the whole point about the gospel bearing fruit is mentioned in the first chapter there, and Paul is rejoicing in it. He can't be everywhere. He's raised up, trained up people, in this case, a man by the name of Epaphras, who went and communicated the gospel, passed on to those people what he had received from Paul, and Paul had passed it on to him. He received it from Christ. And so here we have the great gospel tradition, the revelation of God entrusted to certain people with the responsibility to receive it, to cause it, to allow it to bear fruit in their lives and to pass it on to others. That's how the gospel bears fruit. Let's read Colossians 1 verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as also it does amongst you since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. He has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Try to imagine for a moment what the world would be like if Jesus had never come. I don't know how far we'd get in this thought experiment today because whole books have been written about it. But try to imagine 
a world that, in which Jesus had never come, the gospel never happened, Jesus had never been crucified, never been raised from the dead, and if that hadn't happened, then you have to dismiss everything else too that had come by way of preparation for the coming of Jesus, the Old Testament prophets, everything to do with pointing towards that moment in history when Christ would come. If none of that had happened, none of that existed, what would we have? Now, I would be tempted to say as a preacher, we would have nothing. There'd be no light, no revelation, no understanding, nothing of any value, nothing of any truth. However, there's enough remaining of the shattered, broken image of God in us that we would have something. We'd have something. We'd have people trying to grasp upward to ask, is there a God? They'd be talking about that and they'd have some ideas and tempted to fill in the gaps with their own imagination, the best of their own intuition, the best of their own philosophical understanding and experience. We'd have people reaching inward saying, how can I resolve what's going on inside me? What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose? The best example of this today would be the responsible humanists. People who have already rejected the idea that there is a God and try to make the best of things. How can we find value and how can we find purpose? And so a new spirituality is evolving, a spirituality without God. Now, there's some of that which is positive in as much as when you talk to non-Christians, people who haven't yet found Christ, I'm astonished at the penetrating questions that they ask, and I've never been more challenged over these last few years than spending a great deal of time with a millennial generation, people for whom I have a rem tremendous respect. They have desire, they're, they're wanting to search for stuff and find stuff. Nevertheless, as much as we can say that which is positive about that, it pales into insignificance when we see the fullness of the revelation and the riches and the glory of God, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. So without him, we really would have nothing to be very sure about in the end. But we do have him. So my question is, if we have him, what is the fruit that we're producing? What difference does it make how much more could we cooperate with this great gospel program of fruit-bearing, life-giving, community-transforming, world-changing faith? Interesting. So that's the motivate us to ask the question, how do we allow the gospel to bear fruit in us? Very simply, first point, the gospel must be re received, lived out, and passed on. Very interesting. Apostle Paul says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And uh, when, when we hear this, we, we automatically think of what we have made it. Now the phrase, Asking Jesus to come into your heart is good in a way, 
because it puts a complex thing very simply, but I think it, it has lost all sense and meaning. I notice that nowhere in the Bible are we told to ask Jesus to come into your heart. No, no, I don't want to disillusion you. We, we use that a lot. And if, if that's how you came to Christ, I prayed this prayer, asked Jesus into my heart, and everything was, was great. But really, we, we have pushed aside the, the real meaning and the real force of that, and therefore we miss out and we have lost what it means to receive Christ. What does it mean to receive Christ? I kind of knew this before, but in preparing for this, I was mind-blown as I was reminded of the, of the context of this thing, receiving, receiving Christ, receiving Christ. Um, the communion service, 1 Corinthians 11, almost every communion service we say something like this. This is what Paul said. I received what I received from the Lord, I passed on to you. See, the word receive here is not used in the sense of I received a birthday present, I received a bus ticket, I received a telling off. No, it's, it is talking about something very specific. I have received the gospel revelation which somebody before me received and passed on to me and I now receive and pass on to somebody else. The book of Jude puts it like this. He's saying, I, I, I wanted to talk to you about to contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to us. Now we're in the language of receiving and passing on. So Jude is saying, what, what we are talking about here, the gospel, is not human invention. It's not human people trying to reach out for some answers. It is something which has come down by revelation. As Paul said, what I have received from the Lord concerning communion, I pass on to you. That's how the gospel progresses. That's the only way the gospel bears fruit. A whole context of this is what we might call discipleship. And so here it goes. It, go, it goes like this. The early uh, apostles spent time with Jesus. They saw him face to face. They, they, they heard his teaching. They saw how he lived. And in that way, they were receiving kingdom truths. Kingdom principles, straight from the mouth of the master. What an amazing privilege. We, we could be a bit jealous, except for the fact that what they heard, what they saw, what they received, they have delivered to us. Turn to the pages of the New Testament. You walk hand in hand with Jesus. Go to the book of Acts. You see how the Holy Spirit endorsed this faith and how the Holy Spirit worked in the early church. And it's the same principle. They receive it and pass it on. Now, I've got to say to you that I'm not so sure how much they understood at the time. We find the disciples arguing, how can this be? What does he mean? 
We find Peter saying, no, 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 don't go to the cross, I've got a bed. It should never happen to you. Moments after, he had received the mother of all revelations. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. What did I say? Jesus affirms it. You're blessed. Yeah, I'm blessed. I got it, got it right. No, Peter, you didn't get it right. God showed it to you. But I don't think Peter understood a word that he was talking about. It was a revelation. And the fact that he, he was actually declaring Jesus Christ is the Lord, the Son of God, God manifested in the flesh, those things were the furthest from his mind. Otherwise, he would not have started to rebuke the Lord, the Master, God in the flesh, when Jesus told him the course he had to take. He didn't understand it. In fact, many times in the Gospels, stuff that Jesus said only made sense afterward. So here's a very, very, very important question. Some of the apologists who've been with us over the summer brought this home so powerfully. Try and get this point because it will strengthen your faith. Ask the question, at what moment did Christians or followers of Jesus realize he was not just a prophet, that he was God manifested in the flesh, that he was not just the Messiah, a redeemer in some earthly political sense, but that he was God's answer to the sins of the whole world. At what point did they begin to understand who Jesus was? At what point? Some argue, well, it was 300 years later when the church councils got together and defined their theology and kind of extended it beyond what Jesus said. That's false. Others say, well, you know, it was after the first century when, when they began to think, of, think about some things and make some clear statements. No, no, no. It happened way, way before that. If it wasn't clear before the cross, it became clear after the cross, especially on the day of resurrection when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Suddenly it all made sense. Wow, he really is Lord. He is God manifested in the flesh. And that made sense of everything. So from the day of resurrection onwards, every early believer understood who Jesus really was. And it is that that they passed on. That was one of the first Christian confessions that was passed on by word of mouth and by lifestyle. You know, uh, the New Testament as we have it, took a number of years to come together. The very early believers, they didn't have them, had the Old Testament, didn't have the New Testament. The Gospels weren't the first to be written. So how did they survive? Where did they get their knowledge of Jesus? Very, very simply, somebody who had received it, not just heard about it, say, have you heard? No, they received it. Sometimes it was received directly from God that was the apostolic revelation. Paul says, I received this from the Lord. Direct revelation and the revelation that helped them make sense of the history, things that Jesus said, why he had to die and all of that. And they, they, those, those people received it with faithfulness and passed it on. Then others who had heard from those first apostles received it, lived it, passed it on. And they received it, lived it, passed it on. 
and you got it. I'm not doing breakdancing here, I'm telling you. I'm fast-forwarding till this very moment. Today, we are here because somebody before us heard it, received it, and passed it on. And we are never to break the chain. To receive it means you're gonna pass it on. And if you don't pass it on, I can tell you something, you haven't really received it. I'm not causing you to doubt your faith. Paul here says, you know, I am rejoicing to see the good order amongst you and the firmness of your faith in Christ. But, 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 he goes on to say, make sure you are rooted and grounded. Make sure you are passing it on. So uh, we have in this church a, a, a name for all of this. We call it consolidation. And that means a new believer needs to be rooted and grounded very, very early days so that they have a good beginning and understand that through repentance and faith, through fellowship and encouragement, they produce fruit. Now that old phrase, asking Jesus in your heart, doesn't do any of that. He kind of says, say this prayer, ask Jesus in your heart. It's a kind of Sunday school thing and uh, where's Jesus in your heart? Is he? Hello. Hello, Jesus. It's nice to see you in my heart. This tiny little, no, 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 no. It's, of course, it's true that we receive Christ into our lives. Of course, it's true, yes? And the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Of course, that's true. But if we think it's just about saying a prayer and getting a ticket to heaven, we, we'll just keep paying the lowest subscription rates possible. And, you know, I sometimes uh, stagger at our own idealism here in this church. I freely confess to you that what most pastors would be thrilled about in saying, job done, we here say, we've only just begun. Somebody who loves God enough to be in this building today, to have made it from one week to another, is a victorious person. All around here, we have victory people everywhere. Victory, congratulations, you made it. Amen? Great, great discipline. If you paid your tithes as a, as a result of discipline and love for God, fantastic. If you keep your nose clean, kind of, for another week, job done. Amen and amen. To survive from day to day in this environment, this atmosphere is a victory. Thank God we're here. Congratulations. But it's only the beginning. In other words, to bear fruit, it's more than just showing up once a week. As, as vital as important as that is, don't, don't let me think you think that I'm minimizing it but most pastors would be happy. Church is full, tithes are being paid, people are coming every week, fantastic. And they're kind of just about managing to look like Christians for much of the week, even though kind of around Wednesday, Thursday, perhaps we need a rebaptism or something, I don't know. And that's so wonderful, but it's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about receiving Christ to such an extent that you have a totally new environment and that you live in the light of his lordship. 
In other words, I'm not saying, you know, you, you, you can't even dare breathe the name of Christ unless you're perfect. We are disciples after all, which means that we're mistake-ridden, prone to backslide people, but, but, but it's the issue. It's the dominant focus of our lives. And every decision we make, sooner or later, comes back to that. You can't do it on your own. You know the Holy Spirit's with you and, and he will teach you and time on your own with God is, is the, of prior and utmost importance, but we can only do it together when we're together with a commitment to encourage one another, to build one another up. That's why Paul is writing to these people. He would write to anybody. People that he was with, he'd write back to thank them, congratulate them, encourage them. But this audience of his is even more important because he'd never met them. I like that. I love the fact he'd never met them. He cares for them anyway. Never met them, but he's followed them closely and it was all about the work and ministry of Epaphras. So today, I want you to change your name. Don't call yourself Colin. Well, you wouldn't. I'm just, I don't know what your name, my name. Call yourself Epaphras. Is there a female thing? Epaphrisa. I don't know. <laughs> but I want you to emulate, to copy Epaphras. Who was he? He was not the person who had originated the message. He was not the person who had originally received it. He had received it from somebody else. It had been passed on to him. And he, would, he knew that his job was to pass it on to somebody else who would receive it and pass it on to somebody else. That's why Jesus said, go and make disciples, not just make converts. This is discipleship language. And so when it says you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, what it means is this. You have heard from somebody who has received this, either through personal eyewitness or through secondhand testimony and personal experience, this has been received with a responsibility to pass it on. This is so important. If you know what it is to receive, you, in this sense, you know you have to give it. You know you have to pass it on. And if that chain is broken, then the whole thing collapses. So I want us to go back and re-examine this. So let's, let's have a look at what it means actually to receive. First of all, it means receive, receive the message. Let, let's stick with the simple, basic message of Jesus is Lord. Now, you know, the Bible teacher and me would like to unpack that and talk about all that led to him being declared as Lord. He didn't just come on this planet and said, look, there's the Lord. He had to go through a process. He had to humble himself, become obedient unto death, and so on and so on. So that includes the cross and everything that built up to the cross, which goes back from Genesis 3, verse 15, right the way up. It also includes especially the resurrection because if Jesus died on the cross saying, I'm dying for the sins of Israel, uh, and that was the end of it, they would say, well, that didn't amount to much. But what transformed everything, the earthquake that shook and reverberated the universe cosmically in every other sense was the resurrection, new beginning of the kingdom of God. So all of that is behind this phrase, Jesus is Lord. And remember that that is not just something you come to through intellectual pursuit. 
even if you could be convinced through all the kind of arguments that our very clever apologists have been giving us all over the summer, that God exists, the Bible is true, miracles are possible, and so on. You could, be, you could be convinced, but that doesn't, it's not talking about real faith. Faith is not just being intellectually convinced. It means putting your life into it, depending on it, building your life around it. So when it says receive, you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, it means you believe the reality of it. Not just, okay, it's an idea, but you actually know that it happened. And you can know that it happened. People say, no, well, you can't really know. It's all so long ago. Yes, you can. God has left sufficient witness and testimony that to any open-minded investigator of the truth, as others have discovered, atheists have looked into this and come to Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is the only thing that makes sense of all the historical evidence. So you actually believe that it is true. The early church had a slight advantage because they, they, they witnessed the, the crucifixion and, and, and the resurrection was very, very real. If it had happened like yesterday, we would, we'd be excited about it. But we've got to get the same sense of passion and excitement because the fact that Jesus was raised means he is raised. He is alive today. And that's what makes all the difference to us. Believe the reality of it. But notice it doesn't say, you received the testimony about Christ. He could have said that, would have meant the same thing. But he actually says, you received Christ. What does this mean? When you receive the testimony and you believe the gospel, you enter into a personal encounter with Christ. And that's the thing we like to emphasize. It's not just believing that, it's believing in trusting in, having a personal encounter, a personal relationship with Christ. That's what it means receiving the message, believe the reality of it, and experience that reality. Then, included in this bundle is the idea that life will never be the same again, that you commit your life to it, you commit to be under it, you commit to live it out. It's handed over to you. Now it is yours, and you are committed to it. All right. No wonder he goes on to say, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. Very important. He really didn't need to say that. Because if you're committed to something, and you want it, and you're going for it, of course you're going to go on. But unfortunately today, not only because of this phrase, but I think largely, once you've received Christ into your heart, somebody will come along and pat you on the back and say, congratulations, you made it. You now got your ticket to heaven. Now, knowing where you're going when you're dying is a very important question. I don't minimize it. Today, if you don't know, if you died tonight, you go to heaven, you need to talk to somebody. His name is Jesus, and you say, Savior, help me. We're here also to help you. But it's far more than having a ticket to heaven. You're entering into a kingdom, a whole new environment, and that's what Paul was wanting to get at. Because some of the background to this is very, very up-to-date. There in Colossae, there were beautiful, genuine Christians, but there's a whole lot of mishmashing going on, a whole lot of philosophical ideas and kind of 
mystical ideas. And they were saying, yes, we welcome Jesus. Come and join us, Jesus. Sit down with the rest of them. They were saying, Jesus is not really enough. You've got, you've got to look for other ways of getting wisdom, other sources. And a lot of people say today, yeah, we, we love Jesus, we love Christianity. I've been listening to people today who, uh, recently, who, who believe a whole load of stuff that you and I would not want to believe. A whole load of stuff which is so way out there, some of it even demonic, but they're very happy to have Jesus in the mix. If they can bring Jesus down to the level of other religious teachers, uh, to other ascended atvas, all the rest of this stuff, th then it's okay. They've won. Because if Jesus is only one of many, then he's nothing. But Paul says, you've got to understand this. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And now he's saying, that's your environment. So what he's really saying is this. You have been taken out of your environment, your whole worldview, everything that you've known, everything that you're brought up to believe, you have been taken out of that and you have been placed in another world altogether, another environment altogether. And his name is Jesus. And now he goes on to talk about what we mean by consolidation when we use that word. He says three things, rooted in him, built up, and established in the faith. I'm emphasizing this today because we're kicking off a whole new emphasis for the autumn. If you read the Revival Times, you pick it up. Bruce is going to pick this up. Roots and fruits. You've got to be deeply rooted before you get fruited. And all of that will be unpacked. I'm just opening up the topic today. All right? And, and the reason is, over the summer, we've done ex made extensive effort to win people to Christ. Now, it's not just a sum of evangelism. We keep on evangelizing. We did many, many things. As you know, we had J. John's uh, mission. We, we didn't have it, but we participated in that. We had barbecues, all kinds of things. And uh, uh, 200 people committed to Christ over the, over the um, carnival weekend. But just let's just reflect and pause and just for a moment, just marvel at the mystery and the wonder of God. When we were planning this, what can we do? How can we impact our society? What can we do? We had no idea that something would happen in the middle of the summer that would cause us to make the greatest impact on our community in terms of visibility, understanding who we are, and numbers of people who came to Christ. We had no idea that the dreadful, dreadful disaster would take place. When we heard it, I was up first thing, called Bruce, sent him, said, Bruce, call everybody, and this is what we do. Drop everything. We go there. We get ready. Um, not long after that, I was having lunch in one of the restaurants there, and there was, I was having a private conversation, and there was a man behind me, and he was upset. Somebody had insulted him. Uh, one of the waiters had said something racially, in a racial, racially derogatory sense. I didn't hear that part, but this guy was so upset. And he was, he, there was going to be violence. And I listened to half the conversation. I thought, I'm, I'm going to intervene. So I turned around and smiled at him. And I said, well done. What do you mean? 
I said, you, you've been so badly insulted, but I've been listening. What you have spoken is the truth. You've made your point. You've expressed yourself. That might not change anybody, but well done. He looked at me. I've seen you before. For one moment, I thought, where have I been? That I might... <laughs> You're from that church. Yeah. That was wonderful what happened there. He participated in some of the giving. I'm not saying this justifies the Grenfell disaster, please. But I'm saying how God can surprise us with extraordinary opportunities, unexpected opportunities to be there for people in a way that ensures that the gospel is passed on and it bears fruit. But that's not the end because we've got all these babies, all these new babies. And when a new baby comes, you don't just leave it. It requires seven on seven care, 24 hour nurture, when we had our first child, they said, say goodnight to a good night's sleep for 10 years. They didn't tell the truth. It lasts much longer than 10 years. <laughs> we have the same passion to consolidate new believers. How do we do it? Rooted, built up, established in the faith. Rooted. Notice Paul is mixing metaphors here. So there's a biological thing, plants rooted, bringing fruit built up a building which requires foundation and established making firm. Don't mind him mixing metaphors. I kind of I know why he did it. But anyway, he starts with being rooted. And it's a good place to start because rootedness takes place under the surface. And that's what life in Christ is all about. If your roots under the surface aren't sound, if they're not deep, if what's going on underneath the surface that nobody else can see, if that's not in the right place, you're not going to bear fruit. And what's fascinating to me is he says, you are rooted. What is the new ground that you're in? It's Christ. Every summer, I missed it this year because I missed the opportunity at our local nursery, not you know, where you get plants, not where you get babies, all right? Nursery. And uh, I usually go and buy the reddest, hottest chili pepper plant that I can find. And I find it kind of cool to be growing your own chilies. And uh, you plant it. Now, whenever you transplant something, it's danger zone. Have you ever got something, bought a plant, it's thriving in the shop, you take it home and something happens. <laughs> it just doesn't quite last very long. Uh, when you transplant something, you take it put it into another piece of ground, it's very precarious. And you've got to make sure that, that those roots are established in its new environment. You can't mix your environments, and that's our problem. I put it to you, it's your problem and my problem. 
that we still think and behave as if we're rooted in the former environment. And therefore, we're still open to the ideas and suggestions that come from our former way of life. But it is so inconsistent, so incongruous, that we should be planted here and trying to gain sustenance from over there. So we have to make a major transition in our thinking. To put it this way, I, I say it's a major change of our worldview, radically and thoroughly transformed in our thinking that we are, we actually are planted in Christ and develop the mind of Christ that is a radical change because we don't think the way other people think. We don't think that this world is all that there is. We don't think that there's any earthly wisdom that can substitute for heavenly wisdom. We understand that our environment is in Christ, and if you want to produce Christ fruits, you've got to be rooted in him, which is about depth. It's about sacrifice. It's about giving time, nurturing your spiritual life. And it's about perseverance. But when it's deeply rooted, stuff happens above the surface. It begins to bear fruit. Now, Paul moves from under the surface to above the surface, but he changes the image. He goes from a plant to a building. So he's rooted, right, in Christ, built up in him. And um, why he talks about a building, in my view, is because it suits his purpose better. Meaning that a building is something which immediately appears above the surface. And it's not complete until it's, you know, the job's done. And think about that today. Think about your life today as a building. What you do is another brick in that building, okay? What you do tomorrow, another brick. And sometimes, dear, dear friends, in every one of us, I know this myself, sometimes I'm removing those bricks by making the wrong choices. So it's about daily making the right choices under the Lordship of Jesus, honoring the Lordship of Jesus, that bricks in place. Look, uh, uh, blew that one. Okay, go back. Lordship of Jesus, Lordship of Jesus. And uh, again, don't, you don't have to do this on your own. In fact, I don't think we can successfully do this on our own. I know the Holy Spirit's with you in your own life, without that, you're not gonna grow. You've gotta make sure that you are seeking God and reflecting in his word on a daily basis and applying that word. But when you do it together, particularly in small, small groups, where you can get to know each other and you are committed to building one another up. And you have a, if you, if you don't have a friend who's gonna tell it as it is, then get one, get one. And if they don't, slap them until they do. All right, so you speak to their life, not just in, you know, buddies, go off to the pub together, have some fun, play football, and that's what fellowship is. No, no, no. I'm talking about something that actually causes us to engage at a level of depth with one another's spiritual lives, not as experts fixing one another, but as fellow soldiers fighting our battles together, building up. And then this results in being established in the faith. I'm a bit puzzled because Paul is complimenting them on their faith and the fruit that's happening. 
And uh, he's encouraging them, but he's actually saying, hey guys, there's more work to be done. And in a way, I do get it. Because I know that in my life, I'm sure it's the same for you, that frequently I've got to come back to basics every single day, in fact. The Lord's Prayer, which was sung earlier, helps us a great deal. Give us this day our daily bread. Yeah? In other words, the work of being established in the faith never ends. Why would I say that? Am I accusing you of not being established in the faith? Am I including myself in that? No, we're established, many of us. But just because we are today doesn't mean job is done. We've got to keep on doing that. Keep on doing that. Someday I'll tell the fuller story of this. Around five or ten years ago, more like five. I did try it ten years ago, but never got very far. Probably about five years ago, I had another start. I asked myself, what do I believe? Myself would say, what do you mean what do believe? You preach it every Sunday. Yeah, I know, but what do I believe? You don't believe what you preach? Yes, I believe what I preach, but I wanted to examine my faith. You come, come year by year by year. One of the biggest mistakes and one of the biggest blessings of my life was to go through a period of time of reading the Bible five times in a, four times in a year. It was very good for a season. But after a while, I got so bored, whatever version, I knew what was coming next. So I then swapped that method to spend a lot of time in very short passages. If that's all you do, you miss the big picture. If you go for the big picture, you miss some of the details. So it's a good balance to do, to do both. And uh, so you get so familiar. And I ask myself this question. Do I preach what I preach is because I've believed it so long? Or do I, do I preach what I preach and say what I say because I really believe it now and my faith has been deepened? Now, from point of view of personal experience, I can only say my faith has deepened through the years. But in terms of really, really testing it out, especially in the light of today's environment when there are so many arguments against the gospel, have I actually addressed those arguments in my own life? And it coincided with the time when God was leading me. I, I, I don't have an open cell here in London. I travel too much, but I have a network of people all over the world, uh, uh, people, millennial generation people, uh, and they're, they're anything but Christian and they love me, and I love them, and we engage. And some of the most challenging questions have come to me from Muslims, my Muslim friends, Buddhist friends, atheist friends, humanist friends, because I know I've got to give an answer to them and a reason for my hope. So I said to some of them, blank sheet of paper. Here it is, blank sheet of paper. I'm willing to go back to a blank sheet of paper. Let's construct together. Let's work together and see. I didn't stop believing, but I was ready to re-examine everything, even the existence of God. Now, when I said to Amanda, but I'm going to keep on believing anyway, my wife said, I'm not disbelieving. I'm challenging myself. I'm preparing myself. I'm thinking things through again. So I can be even more convinced and 
even more compassionate and even more articulate in sharing faith with others. What a wonderful journey that's been. I can honestly tell you from that perspective, my faith is stronger. I have more humility. When I'm speaking with people, if I don't know the answer, I tell them I don't know. And we work together. And that's what's drawn a lot of non-Christians. I don't like calling them non-Christians. But people have not yet come to faith in Christ. Because I've received it. I'm sure about it. It's bearing fruit in me bit by bit. And I want to pass it on. So this is how the gospel bears fruit. Somebody's received it before you. And if they didn't pass it to you, you wouldn't have it. Remember that. Because there's somebody in your life that will not receive it unless you pass it on to them. Part of this process of discipling, to be a disciple of Jesus, involves ultimately being a disciple maker for Jesus. That's the whole process. That's how the gospel bears fruit. And everything else that we do, which is vitally important that we do, social action, political action, intellectual persuasion, all the stuff that we do in order to help society be a place not only that is more beneficial to its citizens, but it is more conducive to the proclamation of the gospel. All of that is vitally important. And there are people who is well worth them giving all of their lives to ensure that that happens because we care about the greater environment. However, unless every believer becomes a seed-bearing believer, unless every person understands that the gospel is a fruit-bearing gospel, that if it's going to bear fruit in us and all over the world, we have to receive it deeply, live it, and pass it on. Receive it, pass it on. Shall we say that together? Stay together till it, till it sinks in. Are you ready? Wait for me, wait for me. I want to be a, I want to join this. Are you ready? Receive it. Pass it on. Receive it. Pass it on. Amen. You got it? Okay. Job done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. Thank you for this, the, the truths of these things. Thank you for the reality of New Testament Christian living. Help us, Lord, in our days of institutionalism and over-familiarity with sacred things that we've lost sometimes the mystery, the glory, and indeed the very reality of our faith. Renew us, revive us. Help us receive these new believers Help us consolidate them. Help us ensure that they're deeply rooted, being built up and established in the faith. And help us continue to work on each other with one another that we would see the gospel bear fruit in our lives and through us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless everybody.